for 24-7 prayer to start. This week has a little bit of significance to the Christian church. Does anybody know why? What? Yeah, it's been seven weeks since uh, Passover, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, hey, to be the one not to sign up on Pentecost for 24-7 prayer. <laughs> you never know what might happen. I mean... <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy, but anyways, speaking of Pentecost, I hope today that you hear, <laughs> that you hear from your own language and your own tongue today as I speak and that I don't get in the way. So before we get started, I want you to know that God does miracles and wonderful things. It's just who he is. I know you're not surprised. He's been doing that for a long time. And uh, there was a man, a long time ago, who had a name that meant prayed for or desired one. And he was one of the most brilliant writers that the world has ever seen. He was encountered by the Lord, and it changed his life forever. And he changed his name to, from being somebody, somebody significant, to being somebody small. So he changed his name from Saul to Paul. And the Lord did a miracle. He breathed into this man why he was writing, to, to write the words of the Lord. And we consider that his writings are the words of God. Can you believe it? We have them. He wrote some letters to these churches. And those letters we consider to be God's word. We live by them. We allow them to influence our lives and to be what, what governs our motivations for what we do things and how we see the world and what we actually uh, are going for. So we've been studying one of those letters it's to a church in Corinth. We call it Corinthians. He wrote two at least. And so that we're in the first letter to the Corinthians. If you have a blue Bible, it's on page 928. We'll be looking at chapters 8 and 9 at, together, sort of. We'll be swarming them. <laughs> and so with that, if you believe with me that this is God's word, and that he did that miracle, then stand with me as I read chapter 8. This is God's word. Now, about the food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think that they know something do not know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about the eating of food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to idols, Whenever they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as 
having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat it and no better off if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom, your rights, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if some, or if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Now I'm going to pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, bringing gladness to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are brilliant, bringing light to the eyes. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, and being altogether righteous, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. It's like, it's more precious to me than gold. Even fine gold and sweeter to me than honey. Than the drippings from the comb. For by them we are warned and in keeping them. There is great reward. Who can discern your errors? Forgive me of my hidden flaws. And keep me from willful sin, that I may not be mastered by it, and prove to be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now may the the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So chapters 8 and 9 are perched right in the center of a section of Paul answering a question. So let's get our bearings straight for where we are. I know that most of you, if you've been here, it won't be hard for you to do that, but maybe you haven't. So um, has anybody really enjoyed the uh, discussions or the devotions we've been having about the, the beginning of this letter, chapters 1 through 7? I know some of you have. Okay, some heads nodding and um, some people have told me they really enjoyed it. Has anybody hated it? Nobody's, nobody's getting in trouble. You can hate whatever you want, but it would be good if you did raise your hand because it's a good example. Because a lot of the things that we've been dealing with or seeing and, and, and being dealt with uh, through the text so far have been uh, fruit of a divided church. Some hate the Corinthian series, some don't. I don't know. Okay, it's a bad example. But uh, let me show you. Chapters 1, verse 11. So 1, 1, 1 is easy to remember. Uh, Paul says he's dealing with some quarrels and arguments reported to him by Chloe's household. He begins to then deal with those reports till chapter 4, all the way through it. 
And then in chapter 5, it changes, and he says, okay, there has been further reports. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, there have been further reports. So these guys are going to remain nameless because these are, it's starting to get worse. I know that there's a guy who's sleeping with his in-laws or his mother-in-law, and then there's a, there's a bunch of people who are Christians suing each other, taking each other to court, and he deals with these things through chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, where Rod was last week, verse 1, now, concerning the things to which you have written. So I'm now going to respond to some of the questions that you've had and that you've written me about. And so the first portion of that was all about, do we take on a wife or not? Do we have sex or not? Do we, is this good? Do we, uh, how do we do this as a virgin, as a widow, as a single, as a married? How do we do this? And he starts to lay that whole process out. And in chapter 8, what we just read, verse 1 now, about food sacrificed to idols. Paul thinks this is a great question. I know that because he continues to answer this and unfold this all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. He, he, does, some, he does some extensive viewing of this question and, and, and how it's not just an easy answer. And if any of you haven't just read 8 to 11, 1, then you should. It was just so refreshing for me to uh, take the verses off, take the titles off, take the chapters off. You could do it on the internet and just read it. Because there's so many things in these next chapters that we all love and know if you've been around uh, Christian circles for any length of time that there are verses that are like the big ones here, like 10 uh, verse 31 whether you eat or drink, see, still answering the question, do all to the glory of God. Or 11 verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or 9, 20, to the Jew I became a Jew. Many times in life that there's been people who preached on one or two of these verses, but I haven't had a really good articulation for what's going on inside of this question. And so I'm excited to be here, excited to do this. So let's, let's talk about it. Chapter 8, verse 1, they ask a question, should we eat this food offered as sacrifices to idols? What is going on here? Well, in their market, and the market's really a big deal. I'll kind of touch on that in a minute. But in the market, there's few things you could buy that weren't sacrificed or a part of idol worship. It's a really big piece of their culture. And... It, it, it comes from priests or farmers, or they have these unions, sort of like union workers, and uh, they so they get the the meat to the priests, and then the priests would use a portion of it in the sacrifice, and then they would take it and they would hang it out and sell this. And uh, maybe you would ask, why is that one half done or discounted or something? And be like, wow, it's part of worship this morning. Okay, no big deal, except. In the market, on the walls, and all around are idols. Apollo, whoever. And you can take this meat, you can buy this meat, and you can participate in the buying, in the worship of the idol that it was also used for. This might work out to your favor with that God. It's a common thing. I don't want to be the guy to make the connection to this... um, but it's almost like buying farm fresh or buying regular. <laughs> Don't read into that. I just, it's, 
There's common meats. There's, this is what we do. This is what we can buy. It's McDonald's. Should we get it or not? The meat was part of their life. And this culture of taking this meat for, gain from, for gaining favor or grace from the idol is also part of their life. So the Christian then has to ask the question to Paul, do we take this meat or not? Paul thinks this is a really good question. It's not just an easy answer, but he does respond to this answer first. You can see that we read it in verse 4. We know an idol has really no existence. It's, it's nothing. You can eat the meat. But it's not that simple. He starts off with the freedom that you do have as a Christian. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth and all that. See, you can take the meat. Just meat. But we have responsibilities to each other as a community. We don't like this. I mean, maybe we do. If we do something good, we like to think, yeah, that's going to spread. And that's going to be the, the kindness boomerang, you know. And everybody's going to go around and, and uh, pay it forward. But we don't really like it if it's something that we do that's wrong to think, man, I really could have messed something up in your life. We don't really like that pressure and that responsibility that if I uh, don't treat my husband or wife in a certain way, that it could damage them. Uh, we just would rather think, oh, there's grace for that, there's grace for you and uh, for me. I don't really want to bear that responsibility, we have it. Underneath our actions is power to influence. And it's not a bad thing. It's a responsibility that we have as adults, as growing up together in the Lord, to know and recognize that what we do choose to do can cause and affect our culture and our circles and our groups around us. This is an exciting thing. Because he starts to talk about um, these two paths, uh, one uh, person in this conversation is, is a weak-conscienced person, and one person is one who knows. And he starts to dial into the fact that both of those things can be in themselves a bad thing. If you're a hedonist and you just want to do whatever you want and you have a weak conscience, or if you're a legalist and you're just trapped under all these rules that were free from both of those things... And in them, you have choices and responsibilities. So before we get into those two choices, and those two paths, and the solution to both of them, I want to push the issue a little bit farther about idolatry, about meat offered to idols. Because you might be reading this, or you might have stand and heard the word and think, man, last week was a lot more... Uh, a lot more applicable when we were talking about sex. Uh, but this week, I'm looking at the chapter, and it's, we don't even use these words anymore. Idol? Maybe on TV, a show, but I don't say that. Or sacrifice, or temple, or gods and lords. Or being defiled. <laughs> Being commended to God, this isn't, this isn't really our, we're so monotheistic, this isn't really our, our culture. So what we're prone to do is just sort of read this chapter really fast and skim through it and kind of see where's the next chapter, where are the parallels to my life that are a lot more easier to get. The idol thing isn't really that big of a deal. Or wait, everything that we do in our culture revolves around idols, sacrifices, temples, 
being defiled or being commended to God. Everything we do. It's not easy, it's not hard to see if, if you really only need a few things to be this person who is an idolater, you really just need a, a, uh, a love story or an ideal that you think, man, that's really great, I want to be like that, I want to gain from that, and so then you start to sacrifice for it, and then you gather around people who also want to do that, there's your temple, and... Then you hope to return some favor or some grace, get it from that to become like it in some way. I can think of so many examples. We don't have enough time. Um, movies, some ideal, some American uh, that that's that's got a story that's like Rod mentioned Cinderella Man last week. Uh, He's, he's an individual, he's pulling himself up from his bootstraps, he's doing something for himself, and he's fighting against the tide. Oh, I like that. I want to be like that, so I'm going to make sacrifices for it. I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to gather with other people and figure this out together, and then hopefully that'll give back to me and I'll become that in some way. We, we can do this with so many different things. And that thing, that ideal, and that idol masters us. It masters you. If something is mastering you, you obey it, you serve it. You might think that you're not mastered by anything, but you are. I have a ring on my hand that says uh, Romans 14, 7 on it, which says, none live for themselves. Nobody dies for themselves or lives for themselves. You either live for the Lord or you live for Satan. You're mastered by something. So you're going to sacrifice for it. Money, job, family. Might not be articulated in our culture as so obvious. But the marketplace of Corinth is alive and is in our culture. We have our idols set up on the walls around us. And we live in their shadow. And we give things in hopes to get favor from them. It's just a perfect example. And Paul says, he does this everywhere he goes. If you attack the idols... You can make a change. And you can change the culture that's around you. Their marketplace, it's not like our marketplace, like Farmer's Market, Fulton Street Farmer's Market. Take that, but times it times 100 and add education, technology, uh, news, and uh, worship. There were times where you can't even get into this without uh, paying tribute to a god and getting an ash mark on your hand or your forehead in order to get in to buy food. And remember in uh, Acts 19 where Demetrius, this blacksmith, is going on about this Paul guy wrecking their business because he says idols are really nothing at all. (laughs) Idols are really not gods at all and no one's buying them anymore. Attack the idol, you can change a culture. All we need to do is ask the question, should we eat the meat or not? So that's a little bit of this ripple. And I want to move into us as people 
and kind of explain our nature of idolatry, perhaps. Uh, I didn't have a good articulation of this until I read a book called Unceasing Worship by Harold Best. Uh, it was written in 2003. Anybody can get it. It's not one of those. I wish I was like, oh, I, you can't get this anymore. I don't have any of those. <laughs> Um, and he articulates worship in a really profound way, and it's, changed, it's really changed a lot of my life. So I'm going to share this sentence with you. Harold Best's articulation of worship, his def- definition is this. The continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in the light of a chosen God or a choosing God. The continuous outpouring of all that I am and all that I do and all that I can become in the light of a God that I chose or a God that chose me. He goes on to make the point that God can be described in this way as a continuous outpouring and that he was continually outpouring into the Son and continually outpouring into the Spirit and continually outpouring into the Father. And they said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so man, Adam and Eve, became continually outpouring onto him. And that at what we call the fall, the outpouring turned onto something else. This is the birth of idolatry. The definition is so easily found in, uh, write it down, Romans 1.25. For men exchanged the truth of God and worshipped and bowed down cre- to created things rather than the creator. So the outpouring, the continual outpouring that's in our nature shifted onto other things. And this is the struggle that we have. We are always outpouring ourselves onto what we value. They become idols. And we hope to gain from them by our sacrifice. But guess what? We never gain from them. So chapter 8 is dealing mostly with this uh, concern for the weak conscienced person. So I want to introduce you to the characters here. It's uh, easily seen in verse 10 and 11. Um, For if someone with, uh, here we go, weak conscience sees you. Who are you? With all your knowledge. So I want to just say these are two paths that we can take or be. Weak conscienced person or one with the knowledge. (laughs) Um. And so if you're struggling with one of these two, hopefully that I can expose things for what they really are for you this morning and encourage you uh, to not be an idolater. So to the weak. A telltale sign for the weak, Paul says, is that they're not 100% sure or rather don't live as though there is one God. Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, gods or lords, yet for us there's one. Verse 7, sort of in a backwards way, would imply that if you had this knowledge of there being one God, you wouldn't sacrifice or make sacrifices to idols, right? So, let's test ourselves and see what's really there. And the, the, the test is an easy question. Is God enough for you, or do you need more? 
other ones. It's enough. This is the question that underpins all of the Israel wilderness experience. He, Paul begins to lay this out in chapter 10, but I'll touch on it right now. That Israel, it, 400 years in pagan war, in idolatrous Egypt, patterns and lifestyles and rhythms of destruction that's in them, he brings them out of that. And the question after every section and every page is, is he enough? We really want to do the calf thing. <laughs> I really think we need to add the golden calf thing to this. I don't have enough food. I don't know what's going to happen. I need to grumble. I need to complain. I don't have enough water. This isn't going to happen. I don't trust you for that. Is see enough. See enough. The word of God will not allow for anything else to be added to the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus. Do you know that? Are you sure it's not just plus the car? Man, that will make me so, that will be my satisfaction. Or my satisfaction really will, will be perfected when I get the, the computer. Or, or in my satisfaction, this will be really just perfect if I could just live here or live there. Or if I could just go here and do this. Or my satisfaction... That's not enough. Sure that you're not just praying for things to come to you and hoping for that partner, that person, or that, uh, that husband or wife to come along and, and give you the satisfaction that you're longing for and that you really want to desire. Are you sure that you're not just saying, I know that that's an idol, but just in case, cut me off a couple of T-bones. I know it's just in, I know it's nothing, but it's kind of a tradition for us to do this. We bought the meat. We buy the meat. We do it all the time. We do it so often, and you know what it makes us? Weak. Weak. It makes your theology weak. Because there isn't one God for you, and so you're living a life where there's many things that you're getting satisfaction from and many things that you're giving into in hopes for that. And nobody in the world sees any difference because they do the same thing. We become weak. Weak testimonies or, or weak people that can't stand up or weak people that are afraid of, of, of just saying, yes, I am in the desert. But he's enough. And the more we sow into this, the weaker we get. Look at the rich and famous. The more we sow into satisfaction from things and the more opportunity we get for that, the weaker we become. And we say, how could you? How could you? How could you? You have everything. <laughs> you, have, you have money. You have beauty. You've got the look that I want. You're my idol, and you're not happy? You become an alcoholic? You killed yourself? You did this? You did that? What? It's a trap, and it leaves us with emptiness. But I don't want to be the guy that stands up here and says it's not important things to us. 
As a matter of fact, it's probably only the very, the most important things to us that we turn into idols. I know that there's nothing you wouldn't do for your kids. You don't understand. I just, I just want them to, to succeed in life. And I just want them to have the best and to be the best. And so, uh, God's not enough for that. I mean, I don't, I don't trust him with that. I, I got to give it to the poor into this. I got to sacrifice to this. So I turn to this idol of, turn my kids into idols. Just push them away. And then, then what? It's too much pressure. It's too much pressure for a kid. You're going to lose them. And then what? God's not enough. Or, or I, I just, I got to get this, these pillows around me. I've got to get this cushion of, uh, I got to work more to get more money, to save more money in order to have enough. Because God's not enough. I got to, I need this. Just trust him if he asks me to, to move out of that position or move out of this circumstance. It's, you don't understand how hard I've worked for this degree and this opportunity to be here for me just means everything. I don't want to, I don't even want to say that it's all yours. Lord, it's all yours. I don't even want to say that because he might take it away and have me move somewhere else or he might change this for me. And if I don't have this, I'll be devastated. If I don't have this, my life is, is, is going to just be a complete ruin. If I don't have this, I might not, might not want to live anymore. I want you to know, it's verse 2, verse 3. Those who love God are known by God. No. Those who love God are known by God. Your kids, everything about you, known by God. What idol and what sacrifice to them has ever made you feel known and loved and accepted? What, what has ever given you back from your sacrifices and ever proved to actually work? Those who love God are known by Him in the desert. I'm known by him, my dreams, my fears, my insecurities, and I want to be completely known by him because he's good and he's going to bring me manna. He will bring me water from the rock. He will part the sea if you let him. Pharaoh is behind us. He'll always be there. Those who love God are known by him. Your needs are known by God. How big is he to you? Easy enough. Some of us who think we know don't know as we ought. We don't know him as we ought. So the weak continuously will pour out for things and hope to get returned. They're continuously pouring out their worship and who they are onto, onto their idol and their sacrifice in order to get a return from them. It really never happens. The next way of looking at it would be the ones who know. 
And the trap here is, is that we can become legalistic with what we know. And we can become people that are, are trapped by rules and by certain things. I'm not a Christian. Or, I mean, I'm a Christian, and so I don't eat that meat. Okay. Uh, or perhaps you say, I am a Christian, so I eat that meat. Uh, okay. I'll go with it. I mean, you can talk to, you You want to tell me how that you're doing things in life uh, that the Bible doesn't specifically command not to do? Pass it through 1031. And if you can land there, then I'll go with it. <laughs> I'm bringing glory to God through this, whether I eat or whether I drink, right? Or whether I don't. But what happens, or what can happen, is you can fall into the trap of all of these things that you're doing revolve around you. All of the things that you're not doing can revolve around you. And it's almost like we we fall into this trap of needing to prove to ourselves or prove to people around us that we are accepted to God. But we know that not eating food doesn't commend us to God, doesn't get us any closer, farther from him. Oh, we do it. I've got to go here and I've got to do these certain things and live this certain way and dress this certain way. And that shows that I'm a Christian. I must do these things. Don't question that. Don't question those rules. Trapped in my legalism. I've made what I have, what I've gotten from the Lord into an idol. And if I don't sacrifice to that, he'll love me less. I'm not sure that there's something you can do to make God love you less or anything you can do to make him love you more. He loves you. He really, really loves you. So we're wrapping it up soon. Sorry. Chapter 9 is a response to both of these people. Um... We ended with this. We ended. Chapter 8 ends, rather, with Paul saying, If uh, if what I eat causes my brother to stumble, it's not about me, it's about him. So I will never eat meat again. It begins to teach us that living our lives isn't necessarily about us, isn't 100%, isn't, isn't about us at all. Yes or no isn't about us at all. And he begins to talk about, uh, well, I would, I would uh, sort of use as a, a banner here is look at the beginning of verse 19. Yes, I can eat meat. Though I am free, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win some. How does he do this? We take two ways of how he does this, and then we're going to respond. One way that he does this, making himself a slave to all while yet being free. Number one, he has said no to what he could have in order to show from his own life that Jesus is exclusively sufficient. Okay, He has said no to what he could have to show from his own life that Jesus is the only joy for him. And number two, he pursues, he relentlessly pursues people who need the gospel or the truth of Jesus. 
Love seeketh not its own, right? So he ends chapter 8 with this thing, saying, I would sacrifice meat for my brother. I don't care. Because I know that the freedom that's on the table, the freedom that you could have from idols is more important, is so important to me that you can have that. I will make a change in my life. I'm not going to just tell you that you can be free. I will literally make a change in my life that doesn't feel that great. I'll, I'll stop eating meat. For me, that would be a big deal. Sorry. I have said no to all of these things, chapter 9. I have said no. I could have a wife. I could be paid. I could have this. I could have that. I've said no to them for your sake because I know you. And I want you to see from my life that I could go off and buy a house. I, I could do that. I can get a big one. I can get whatever one I want to. I could get the boat or the things that I could have. There's just things. I could have the car. I've chosen not to because I know you. And I want you to see true freedom. It's important to me. More important than a house. Look at verse 12b, or halfway through 12, sorry. But we did not use this right. We, what we could have. We did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We put up with anything. We've got grace for you. We've got grace. We put up with anything, whatever it takes, however long it takes. I'm walking with you. Just out of curiosity, when is the last time that you've just said no to, to what your desires were out of love and out of, um, to show someone the gospel? And I know. I've been to Africa. Whew. I said no to America or the things that I, good coffee for, whatever, for, the, for that month. Uh, it's one thing to go to a people that you don't know that's really far away, but sure is another thing to say no to the things that you want for the people that are around you, for the people that are closest to you. Paul isn't just shooting in the dark here and saying, yeah, you know, I chose not to do a couple different things. Hopefully that you, uh, hopefully you noticed, uh, <laughs> Corinth. I know you, and I've, I've known you, and I've, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what about my life can help you. What sacrifice in my life can help you? What if someone around you, someone very close to you, what if they just needed you to say no to something once? What if your wife or family or husband just needed you to say no once or, or not needed, just what if it could change their life? What if they could see the gospel more through that? This is a question that we should be asking. What if I choose not to do this or if I choose not to do that? You care enough about a person. To ask the question. Which leads me to the second thing. Though I am free, and I have made myself a slave to all, okay? I pursued people. I care enough about all different types of people that I have really, really pursued them to figure out how I can level and how I can talk with them. How I can communicate to what they need in life and how I could make sure that what I'm saying to them makes sense to them. Verse 20. 
different races, walks, different circles. To the Jew, I became a Jew so that I might win some of the Jews. To, to the ones under the law, I became as one in the law, even though I myself am not under the law. I just want to win some of them. I leveled to them. I came onto their field and I, and I spoke to them with their language and tried to, sacrificing what I could do, what I could be. So what? I could have came walking into the temple uh, of the Jews with a ham bone. <laughs> I could have. Antiochus. Uh, never mind about that. I can't believe in all the fights that I got into with my parents and my high school growing up because of this verse and what I thought it meant. What, I became a Jew to save the Jew. You know, I just was like, I just really wanted to dress in a certain way and do certain things. And I used this as an example of what it really means is I just, I just secretly want to look like this. And so to the punk rock guy, I became a punk rock guy. Uh, you know, Dad, that's why I have a mohawk. <laughs> it really means the exact opposite. Shame on me for, for using that. I mean, this week, I am so shocked by this. I'm so shocked by verse 15. I have not made use of any of these rights. Am I not writing this? And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. Who says that? You never write to someone and tell them all these things and hope they don't give you money or pray for you or do these certain things for you. What's he say? I would rather die than be deprived of this boast. How? How does that make sense? Didn't he just, in chapter 1, quote Jeremiah 9, 24, and say that those who boast, boast in the Lord? How is he boasting in what he's doing here? How is he not writing this with pride? I'll tell you how. There's only one way. That his boast is in the fact that he's suffered many things for these people. That he has said no to many things so that they might see the gospel. That they might see that, Paul, I'm a person who has put all of my eggs in his basket and he has given me satisfaction and joy. I've suffered for you. I don't want anybody to take that away from me. Why? Because this is who God is like. And Paul says, I want to be just like him. To the weak I became weak. God, God comes, and he comes, and he comes to people. He levels with them. Adam and Eve, where are you? I'll make a covering for you. Abraham, I know, I know, I'm, gonna, I'm bringing the sun for you. I'm going to do this. Hagar, I see you. You're about to die under there, I know. Israel, you're... You're thirsty. You're out of the desert. I see you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to give you water. I will give you all that you need. Joshua, pacing. Back. How are we going to do this thing without Moses? And the angel, the commander of the Lord's army shows up and says, I'm with you. It's going to be okay. This is a gospel. To the weak, I became weak. This is Jesus. Leaving perfect contentment and 
perfect outpouring with God. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He says, I suffered so that I might level with you, so that I might come to you in your sufferings and comfort you. I was taken to the top of the temple. I was shown the kingdoms of the world. And I said no, because I'm fighting for you. I said no to the idols, because I'm fighting for you. I'm pouring myself out for you, for your wife, for your family, for your kids. To the weak, Jesus became weak. I think that's a good place to end. So let's just bring the band back and I want to just summarize really quick. If you are, uh, if you're feeling like you're the weak one, uh, the weak conscious one who keeps continuing to give in and give in to idols, um, let go. Let go because he's trustworthy. Let go because he will bring to you what you need. And be, let go because obeying God is loving God. And those who love God are known by him. It's okay. Or maybe you're on the other side of the fence. And you feel like if you let go of your rules and your lifestyle and meet somebody where they are or sacrifice certain things, ideals, rituals, and rules, it might make you less before God. Let go self-righteousness. Let go of, of man-made rules that set us up for traps of self-affirmation and destructive rhythms. Destructive. Destroy the idols in your home. Destroy the idols in your house, in your culture, and in your family. If it's your kids, give it to God. If it's your jobs, give it to God. If it's your ministry or your way of ministry. Eating food doesn't bring us closer to God. Lastly, Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ and pursue the weak and pursue the people that are around you. Pour yourself out in humility for the people that are around you and say no. Pray with me. Whatever gain that I had, I consider loss. Consider all things a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of many things. And I count everything as rubbish and compare it to then having a righteousness 